It's December 1991, and the sun warms the sidewalks of Melbourne, Australia. People have flocked to the streets, scouring the shops for Christmas presents. At a local bookstore, a large crowd has gathered. Standing in a long line that snakes around the corner, they're waiting to meet 37-year-old Mark Brandon Reed, better known to many by his nickname Chopper, who is here signing copies of his recently released autobiography. Reed has spent most of his adult life behind bars. Since he was first incarcerated back in 1975, he has had a revolving door relationship with prison, falling quickly back into a life of crime after each release. Now in December 1991, he has only been out a month, following his most recent two-year sentence for shooting the friend of a drug dealer he was trying to extort money from. But something happened during this most recent sentence that changed everything. Reed struck up a relationship with a journalist called John Sylvester. Initially, Sylvester wrote scathing articles about Reed and his crimes, but from this, the most unlikely of friendships has grown. Indeed, it's Sylvester who is largely to blame for Reed being here at the bookstore today. The two men have worked together, along with fellow reporter Andrew Rule, to create the first of what will be a long line of books chronicling Reed's life and exploits. It's made up from contents of over 300 letters that Reed wrote to Sylvester while still inside Pentridge Prison. Chopper, from the inside, has been self-published as they couldn't find a publishing house that would take it on. Sylvester and Rule believe Reed has a tale worth telling though, and Reed is a natural storyteller. For the first time in his life, a path is opening up to an honest living if he can just avoid the temptation of falling back in with the old crowd. A hush falls over those in the line as Reed emerges from a door behind the checkout. He's an imposing figure, standing six feet, two inches tall. And even though he lost a lot of weight after a prison stabbing, he still has a presence about him. Reed's trademark mustache curves all the way down to his chin and a selection of tattoos poke out around his neckline. He takes his seat at a signing table, piled high with copies of his book, settling into a rhythm, scrawling his name inside covers, looking almost amused at the nervousness of those who have come to lay eyes on one of Australia's most notorious criminals. A couple of his fans have decided to ask Reed if he'll sign a machete. It's enough to make Reed chuckle as his pen slides across the steel, a chillingly appropriate nod to his past. But is this version of Reed really the changed man he's selling to the public? Has prison altered his outlook on life and set him on course to earn an honest living as an author? Or is this just a facade, a distraction he'll grow tired of and eventually pick up his weapons and get back to what he has always done best, preying on the criminals of the Melbourne underworld? For now, Reed is happy to capture his exploits on paper, although some question how truthful he's being. This is just the first of over a dozen books he will release, but his biggest story is the one he saves for last, during a televised deathbed confession. If true, Reed the storyteller's final tale could end years of speculation and confirm what police were never able to prove in court that Mark Chopper Reed is a cold-blooded killer. 
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Mark Chopper Reed, of the words he spoke only weeks before he died. How he tried to leave the life of crime behind, but kept getting sucked back in. The Hollywood A-lister whose career was launched off the back of playing the title role in Reed's life story. About the fearsome reputation for violence that he traded on, even after his eventual release from prison. A man who spent decades behind bars and found it hard to adjust to life outside. And the four murders he confessed to just 16 days before his death. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It's 1992, and Mark Reed has relocated to Tasmania, vowing to go straight and leave every aspect of his former life behind. His professional relationship with John Sylvester has been central to that, but it's a far cry from where they started out. When Sylvester wrote his first article disparaging Reed, he received a Christmas card from him that said, May the Yuletide log fall from your fireplace and burn your house down. Now, though, the pair of them have become friends. Whereas the first copies of Reed's book literally fell apart at the seams because they didn't use enough glue to bind them, subsequent editions will go on to become bestsellers, eventually selling over half a million copies. Reed now has a chance at a fresh start, but even away from the Melbourne underworld, the temptation to turn back to a life of crime is strong. He reconnects with some old associates and makes friends with a biker gang in Tasmania who share Reed's obsession with guns. Reed himself won't admit it at the time, but he's struggling to come to terms with life on the outside. It's a dangerous mix that won't end well for him. 
only six months after being released, he finds himself the subject of police interest again. A man of Reed's disposition is an enemy nobody wants. But as it turns out, he can be just as ruthless with his friends. In May 1992, he is seen drinking at the Clarendon Hotel in the town of Evandale. He is spotted leaving the bar shortly after with a friend of his, Sidney Michael Collins, who happens to be a senior member of the Black Ulan's biker gang. 15 minutes later, Collins has a gunshot wound to the chest, inflicted by his own pistol. Miraculously, he survives. Reed is quickly identified as the police's chief suspect. They catch up with him at a casino not far from where Collins lives. Reed comes out after a session at the tables to find 10 officers waiting for him, guns drawn. He makes an attempted humor, asking if they're here to do a tax assessment on his winnings, but the officers are in no mood to joke. They already have a statement from a man Reed uses as his driver, confirming that he pulled the trigger. Collins himself initially says that he was shot by an unknown man outside his house and managed to make his own way to the hospital. Days after Reed is charged though, he changes his story. Collins now claims that while sitting in the back seat of Reed's car, he was offered a choice, a bullet in the brain or in the chest. Reed, he says, made the decision for him, opting for the latter. Collins believes the motive to be a contract on his own life that Reed had been approached to carry out. In a bizarre twist, Collins confirms that Reed had his driver drop him off at the local hospital and Reed headed onto the casino from there. When police search Reed's house, they find the Beretta in his garden, along with a dozen other firearms and a set of nunchucks. Two heavily publicized trials follow. The first jury is dismissed after not being able to reach a verdict. The second jury has no such difficulty though, and after three days, finds him guilty as charged. The prosecution moves immediately to have Reed formally declared a dangerous offender, which under Australian law could see him detained indefinitely. Reed, true to form, reacts with his usual wit. He has already started work on his next book, and is quoted as saying that like Oscar Wilde, he does his best work behind bars. Incredibly, in the midst of all this, Reed starts to receive interest in turning his life story into a movie, and in June 1993, signs a deal with a producer. The buzz of this good news is short-lived, however. It appears he might be behind bars again for some time after his first appeal to overturn the declaration is rejected in August 1993. When the second appeal goes the same way, Reed is faced with the bleak possibility that he may never be a free man again. While he languishes behind bars, there are twists in store for Reed on a personal front. His girlfriend, Margaret Kasser, breaks off the relationship when he's sent to Risden Prison in Tasmania. She will later say that she never knew Chopper, only Mark, and this latest trip to prison is a bridge too far. But not all women agree with her, Reed receives floods of letters from admirers during his incarceration, some who have been the victims of crime themselves, applauding him for targeting the kinds of people he did. Many show their appreciation by sending explicit photos. One such lady is Mary Ann Hodge. She had never heard of him until she read his first book on vacation and got into an argument with friends about whether he has any redeeming features. When she gets home, 
she decides to find out for herself and writes to Reed in prison. It's the start of an intense, long-distance romance, and it isn't long before Reed proposes. In April 1995, the couple are married inside the walls of Risden Prison, with Reed's lawyer acting as his best man. Reed makes the same promises to his new wife that he made to his ex. If he's ever released, he will stay out of trouble. Life settles into the mundane routine of prison for Reed in between visits from his wife until two years later, when things finally take a turn for the better. His lawyer once again challenges his declaration as a dangerous criminal, and third time's the charm. On July 18, 1997, his conviction is successfully overturned. Reed's sentence reverts to six years for the offense committed, and there's finally light at the end of the tunnel. Reed keeps his head down, stays out of trouble for a change, and in February 1998, is granted early parole. Following his release, Reed seems to stay true to his word, embracing his newfound celebrity status rather than returning to a life of crime. The movie option he signed five years ago is starting to look like it might actually come to fruition. Funding is being sourced and a director is attached. There's even talk that Russell Crowe might be approached to play the title role. True to form, Reed manages to steal the spotlight in the most public of ways, and it almost costs him his movie. He is invited on comedy talk show McFeast Live and proceeds to empty the green room fridge of beer before he goes on air. In a car crash of an interview, a drunken Reed brags about people he says he has killed and even jokes about feeding one victim feet first into a cement mixer. The show is canceled soon after due to public outrage and the federal parliament threatens to pull funding for the film, unless Reed is not paid a penny for it. Producers reluctantly agree, although there's still no guarantee it'll ever get made now. Soon after, he's charged with a firearms offense when he is captured on camera holding a gun for a publicity shoot, but is soon acquitted. His books continue to reach a growing audience, with eight released so far. Amongst his fans are such prominent figures as acclaimed U.S. crime writer Elmore Leonard, who describes Reed as a living legend. Reed continues to keep close to the movie people, and in what will be his only real involvement in the film, suggests the then little-known actor to play the title role. Arguably better known back then as a comedian, Eric Bana has only featured in one film so far. Bana tests for the role and he's perfect. All that remains is for him to get into character, and for that, he'll need to immerse himself in Reed's world. Banna takes his craft seriously and jets down to Hobart, Tasmania for what will be an experience unlike any other he's had. It's a warm summer day in 1998 on Reed's chicken farm near Hobart, Tasmania. Reed is doing what he does best these days, commanding an audience. He's on his feet, towering above his visitors. At 44 years old, Reed isn't in the same shape he was in his heyday, but is still an imposing figure, striding around working his way through a selection of anecdotes. He's used to public speaking now, but his audience today numbers just two. Andrew Dominic, better known for his work on music videos, has signed on to direct the film and his job today isn't just to listen, it's to record. He sits, handheld camera pointing towards Reed, capturing every word, every move, every mannerism. 
Next to him is the man who literally needs to become Mark Chopper Reed. Eric Bana sits listening to Reed regale them with a tale of how and why he had his ears cut off. Bana, looking every inch the movie star he's about to become, in leather jacket and shades, is smiling, yet gives off an apprehensive air. Who wouldn't when a man like Reed leans over you? As he does to Bana, now mimicking the actions of having his ears sliced off back in 1978. Dominic chips in with questions, finessing the detail, while Bana just soaks it in, absorbing the way Reed moves, walks, and speaks. They move inside, Reed rattling through his favorite methods of extorting cash. Some are frightening in their simplicity. He tells his visitors about walking into a room and promising his victims that one of two things will happen in the next 60 seconds. Either they pay him what he asks for, or he'll gun them down. Most argue, he says, try and reason with him, but his resolve never falters. Occasionally, he has to fire a warning shot into the ceiling, but in the end, everyone pays. Not content with taking their money, Reed recalls how he would return a few days later, meeting his victims in local bars, offering to buy them a round of drinks with their own money. With taunting behavior like this, is it any wonder that so many contracts were taken out on him over the years? Ever the entertainer, Reed peppers his anecdotes with humor, as well as quoting people like Winston Churchill. He insists on acting out scenes from a children's book he has written, set in 16th century Italy. Director Andrew Dominic will later recall that Reed barely looks at Banna or talks to him directly throughout the entire visit. Later, he will say that he thinks it was Reed's way of putting on a performance for Banna, forcing the young actor to study him. One thing comes through loud and clear to the young actor, watching Reed pace back and forth, recalling incidents of violence like fond childhood memories, Reed's disdain for those he used to steal from. Reed refers to them as the Café Latte criminal set, telling Banna that these men didn't have the first clue about dealing with someone like him. You can't kill people by belting them over the head with an American Express card, Reed tells them. Ultimately, he did what he had to do in prison to survive. You can be a professional criminal, a professional bank robber, a professional thief, he says to the camera. But the most feared thing in prison, in the criminal world, is a psycho. The trip is time well invested. At the end of the visit, Banna returns home, having Reed's speech patterns, mannerisms, and even his walk down to a T. It leads to high praise from Reed himself, who tells people, Eric Banna does a better chopper Reed than I do. The lead-up to the film's release is an exciting time for more than just one reason. In 1999, Marianne gives birth to a son, Charlie, and for the first time in his life, Reed has more to live for than just himself. The film is released in 2000 and is a success, quickly establishing itself as a rare thing, a true cult movie. Its reported fans range from stars such as Leonardo DiCaprio to actual underworld figures in Melbourne. Reed himself has mixed feelings about the end product. Some speculate that this is simply to do with the fact that he makes no money from a venture that takes in almost $4 million at the box office. Sadly for Reed, what appears to have been a few years worth of good fortune is about to come to an end. 
In 2001, his marriage breaks down and he and Marianne divorce later that year. Reed will later claim that he only married her in the first place on advice from his lawyer, saying he thought it might get him out of jail sooner. Never one to wallow, Reed moves back to Melbourne, where, in 2002, he is questioned by police over the disappearance of his former friend, Sid Collins, the man who Reed shot in the chest a decade ago. Collins went missing on September 1st while on a trip to northern New South Wales to recover a debt. Reed is adamant he has had nothing to do with Collins since his release from prison, and police have no evidence to the contrary, so he is left alone to continue rebuilding his life. In addition to the ongoing series of books based on his life and experiences, Reed tries his hand at children's books, releasing what turns out to be his only foray into that genre in 2002. It's a surprisingly dark and violent fairy tale whose main character takes revenge on a bully. Soon after that, he reconnects with former girlfriend Margaret Kasser. The pair rekindle their romance and in January 2003 get married. Later that year, Kasser gives birth to Reed's second son, Roy. Reed is seemingly sticking to his promises of an honest life. He continues to surprise people with the creative ways he dreams up to cash in on his celebrity status. In 2003, Reed tries his hand at music, releasing his debut hip-hop track, a song called Chop Chop. Two thousand three is also the year that Reed tries his hand at painting. His first exhibition in August is a success, selling twenty-seven paintings in the first twenty-four hours for anywhere between five hundred and one thousand five hundred dollars a piece, including portraits of the famous Australian outlaw Ned Kelly. Reed's renaissance doesn't end there. His natural flair for storytelling, coupled with his love of dark humor, sees him embark on a career as a stand-up comedian. Between 2005 and 2008, he tours Australia. His shows are based, unsurprisingly, around his life. During this period, he also releases a rap album called Interview with a Madman. It's as if, after all these years behind bars, Reed is throwing himself headfirst into life to make up for lost time. Time, however, is the one thing Reed does not have on his side. Since his Pentridge days, Reed has suffered from hepatitis C, a condition he puts down to using shared razor blades in prison. He's learned to live with it, but in 2008, is dealt a blow from which he will ultimately never recover. In March, Reed is told that without a liver transplant, he'll likely be dead within five years. He refuses to even entertain the idea, saying that he doesn't want to deprive someone else of an organ. Just four years later in April, 2012, Reed is diagnosed with liver cancer. He undergoes surgery three months later to remove multiple tumors, but this is one battle that the fearless Reed can't win. As his health continues its rapid decline in 2013, Reed knows he doesn't have long left. He reaches out to the popular Australian news series, 60 Minutes, telling producers that he has one last show to put on if they'll give him the stage. What he teases is more than enough to pique their interest. He promises to confess to the one crime he's never been convicted of. Murder. We've come back full circle to Pentridge Prison, 
to read, sitting opposite reporter Tara Brown. He has already told producers he will be admitting to four murders, despite being suspected of as many as 19 over the years. Are you prepared to tell the truth today? Tara Brown asks him. Yeah, of course I am, Reed replies. That's what it's all about. This is the last interview. Four is all you're getting. That's it. Brown reminds him that he himself has previously been quoted as saying if there's a camera in the room, he's likely to lie his head off. Reed doesn't deny those words, but repeats that he's telling the truth now. Preamble done, they dive right into murder number one, and it's a case that Reed has never even been linked to before. A case from way back to when he was only 17, and still making a name for himself. To hear Reed tell it in such matter-of-fact terms is chilling. Reed tells her that his first murder took place on December 12, 1971, in Collingwood, one of the oldest suburbs of Melbourne. Collingwood's streets are steeped in history with many of its buildings dating back to the 19th century, remnants of a gold rush boom that had sent the economy soaring. That day, though, a different kind of history was made, the kind that most people would prefer to forget. Reed tells Brown that his target was Desmond Costello, a long-standing member of the local Dockers Union. Costello was no stranger to violence, with allegations of intimidation and dishonesty, dating back to the 1930s. Not an easy man for even the most seasoned gangster to take down, let alone a teenager. So Reed planned a sneak attack waiting outside the Leinster Arms on Gold Street, where he knew Costello was drinking. When he finally came out, Reed made his move. Costello must have heard something, maybe Reed's shoes scraping on the sidewalk, and turned, looking puzzled at an unfamiliar face. He was about to ask what the hell Reed was looking at when he saw the gun. What are you going to do with that? Costello asked. Reed answered the question with one of his own. What do you think? A stunned Costello couldn't take Reed seriously. He told him to get lost and that if he didn't, he would take the gun off Reed and smack him around with it. The threat triggered the young man into action. Reed tells Brown that he didn't hesitate, shooting Costello right in the head. When it was over, he looked around, scanning for witnesses. But the streets were deserted. He moved quickly, opening a metal door in the sidewalk that led down to the cellar. A ladder glinted in the sunlight, angling away into the gloom below the bar. He heaved Costello's body onto it, watching it tumble down into the darkness, before dropping the heavy door back into place with a clang. One more check to make sure no prying eyes were watching, and 17-year-old Mark Reed slipped his hands into his pockets and strolled away like nothing had happened. He returned the next day with an accomplice to move the body and was amazed to hear noises coming from the darkness. Incredibly, Costello was still alive. Reed wasn't one to leave a job half done and finished him off by standing on his neck. He and his accomplice managed to carry Costello's body a few blocks away, dumping it in the shadows of a huge factory chimney known as the Collingwood Shot Tower. Costello was then unceremoniously dropped into an excavation pit, which was soon covered over by a new freeway. When Tara Brown asks Reed why Desmond Costello had to die, 
Reed replies that he hasn't the faintest idea and that he couldn't care less. She goes on to ask him, did why ever matter to you? He replies, why had nothing to do with it? One confession of the promised four down, three to go. The next relates to another that he was never linked to officially. One that happened while he was serving time inside Pentridge Prison, in which he acted as a judge, jury, and executioner. He talks Tara Brown through this next part of his confession in great detail, as he opens up the murder of fellow inmate, Reginald Isaacs. Reed takes Brown back to April 1975 and tells her about Isaacs, who had been behind bars for seven months for the kidnap and murder of nine-year-old Greg Cowie in September of the previous year. Isaacs was a former British soldier, so not the easiest man to take down, but being a sex offender in prison put a target on his back, in spite of the fact that the court had already sentenced him to death at the gallows. There hadn't been a hanging at Pentridge for eight years, and members of parliament were already pushing for the death penalty to be abolished. Isaacs had no way of knowing it, but that's exactly what came to pass on April 23rd, 1975. Not that it would matter in his case. Reed described how he and his friend Charlie Hegyalji, known to many as Mad Charlie, had plans for Isaacs. They walked with purpose into his cell and found him lying on his bed. Isaacs tried to get up, but Charlie knocked him down to the ground. What happened next occurred with such speed and savagery that Isaacs didn't stand a chance. Reed climbed up onto the bed and leapt off, landing on Isaacs' head. He repeated this three more times before launching his full body weight, all 250 pounds of it, onto Isaacs' chest. Isaacs was still alive, but badly hurt unable to speak through the pain. Reed removed the fallen man's shoelaces and tied his hands behind his back. Once Isaacs was restrained, Reed described how he grabbed the sheets from the bed, wrapping them around his neck, twisting them tight into a makeshift noose. He threw the loose end up and over the observation gate at the top of the door, tying it into place so Isaacs was partially suspended. Reed moved in to finish what he started, pushing down on Isaacs so the sheets dug deep into his neck. With the battering he's already taken, Isaacs was in no state to fight back, and it wasn't long before what little struggle he put up stopped altogether. Reed removed the shoelaces from his wrists to make it look like a suicide. Then, he and Charlie slipped out of the cell, closing the door behind them, strolling away without a care in the world. Reed tells Brown how guards discovered Isaac's body the next time they checked his cell, but stresses that he was never even questioned, let alone suspected of any involvement. Brown remarks that Reed sounds proud of what he has just confessed to. Anyone that can kill a child in such a manner doesn't deserve to live, replies Reed, himself a survivor of sexual and physical abuse as a child. As to why it had fallen to Reed to carry out the informal sentence, he recalls that the inmates had collectively agreed that whoever saw Isaacs first when he came in had to kill him. As simple as that. The official verdict remains a suicide, even with Reed's confession. 
There are those who don't believe Reed's version of events, but the family of Isaac's victim say that they were visited by a senior officer who told them that Isaac's death was only made to look like a suicide, though stopped short of naming Reed as the man who killed him. Reed moves swiftly onto the third confession, and this one is a familiar name. In the previous episode, we saw Reed stand trial for the murder of Sammy the Turk in 1987, but get acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Reed's revised version of events starts the same, saying that he went outside Bojangles' nightclub with Sammy to buy a firearm. But contrary to what he told the jury during his trial, Reed tells Brown that Sammy did not turn a gun on him. In fact, the well-known gangster was completely unarmed. Reed had been right, however, in his assumption that Sammy was setting him up to be killed. The only thing that saved him was that Bojangles had two parking lots, and Sammy had told his men to meet them in the wrong one. Realizing that Sammy was planning to cash in on one of the many bounties on his head, Reed pulled out his sawn-off shotgun and fired at the defenseless man, killing him instantly. He couldn't believe that anyone fell for his original version of events. That wasn't self-defense, Reed tells Tara Brown. That was outright murder. The fourth and final confession is another familiar name. Sid Collins, the biker gang boss who went missing in 2002. After the initial incident in 1992, in which Reed shot Collins, the two had no real contact for years. But in 2002, Reed tells Brown, they crossed paths once again. Reed had been in the town of Casino in New South Wales, doing a public speaking event. Reed recounts how Collins came up to him after the event and asked him to sign some memorabilia, saying he hoped they could let bygones be bygones. Reed was taken aback by the request from a man whose testimony cost him a six-year stint back in prison. He is a little scarce on the details from here, but says he arranged to meet Collins after the event. They climbed into Collins' car to head back to his house, and somewhere along the journey, Reed says he shot Collins and buried his body at a location he refuses to disclose. After the dust has settled following his fourth and final confession, Brown asks Reed what it feels like to kill someone. I don't feel anything at all, he tells her. Nothing. No adrenaline rush. No sense of fear. The tone now is even more somber as they talk about his illness, how he doesn't have long left. Reed is philosophical about his life and has no regrets, ending by saying he hopes there is still a place for him in heaven. Mark Reed finally passes away on October 9th, 2013, aged 58, just 16 days after his televised deathbed confession. He died as he lived, with no fear, few regrets, and a complete absence of guilt over any of the four murders he finally admitted to. Producers of 60 Minutes offer to share all the information Reed divulged to them if it helps any ongoing investigation, but the only killing anyone can prove he was involved in was Sammy the Turk. Some say his confession was a last grab for the limelight. Others are convinced, based on the extreme violence he unleashed during his lifetime, that he was capable of anything, including murder. The truth may never be known, but today, nearly a decade on from his death, 
the world's fascination with Mark Chopper Reed endures. Why? Perhaps that question is best answered by the man himself, via one of his favorite mantras. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we unpack the deathbed confession of James Washington, a Tennessee man serving a 15-year sentence for second-degree murder. For 12 years, he has harbored the truth behind the brutal murder of Joyce Goodner back in 1995. Afraid to take what he knows to the grave, his confession reopens her cold case, but is Washington's confession the truth or the result of drug-induced hallucinations. Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 